Hello, Conversations with Dwyer listeners. If you are enjoying the podcast but you want a little bit more, you can become a Patreon subscriber, and for $5 a month, you can get bonus content, bonus episodes, and a podcast that I create solely for Patreon where I talk to comedians about the music that they like. And you get a pin that was created by Charlene Yee of the, the, the Conversations with Dwyer logo. So please, become a Patreon subscriber. The link is in my show notes under All Things Dwyer, or you can just go to themattdwyer.com. Thank you, and enjoy this episode of Conversations with Dwyer. Welcome to Conversations with Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. This is a music podcast. And speaking of music, that song that played me in is called Ounce of Deception. It is from the album Every Good Boy Deserves Fudge. And my guest today is Mark Arm from Mudhoney, obviously. And man, oh man, am I excited. Just to back up for a second, I want to talk about Every Good Boy Deserves Fudge. It's not just from that song there on July 23rd they are doing a 30th anniversary reissue of the album uh, uh and I ordered it and you can pre-order it on vinyl or whatever you want but uh, definitely pay for it all ways to buy it are in the show notes please please purchase the album it's really great i got an advanced digital copy and all the extras and the bonus material is just so goddamn good and so is mud honey and I'm really thrilled to have Mark Arm on the show because I've wanted him on the podcast for a long time. I actually had notes already prepared for him for about a year. <laughs> sort of like a, a stalker awaiting, you know, like, oh, this, it's going to happen. Mark and I are going to happen. And it did. And I'm really excited. It's a great conversation. This is a great episode. And this is a great album. Um you could watch the uh, video version of Mark on the Patreon. I think there's a little bit bonus material in the interview. So if you become a Patreon subscriber, but if, if, and also if you're just here because you're a mud honey fan and a Mark arm fan, check out my library. Cause I have, if you like, if you're into the music from that era or just good music in general, I've had a ton of guests or sub pop. If you're a sub pop fan, I've had a ton of sub pop artists starting with Alex from Mets. Um, and that's it. <laughs> no, I, I have a great relationship with Sub Pop, and Becca helps me book the shows from there, so I'm very thrilled. But if you like 90s rock, L7, I've had Danita Sparks, J uh, David Yao from the Jesus Lizard, you name it, they've been on the show. So check out the library, and you can go to the for to look peruse at all past episodes or my Instagram, Conversations with Dwyer, see who's been on there, but the is a great way. To, to see what I have a whole thing, my smart and talented partner. She helped me uh, put together the website, and she does them professionally. If you wanna need a website, she does my favorite murder. She does Allie Ward's ologies. She does a lot of websites. So, if you need a website, she's a good person for a website. Uh, mine might still be under construction at the moment, so don't be like, look at mine. There's still, but you can check out the episodes on there. Um, all right, that's enough of my ramble bamble. I'm really excited about this episode of with Mark Arm. Please enjoy. Did you get a new hit? I did. Who told you that? I heard it. 
Now you're the first person to ever bring up my hip about a two hundred. Um, oh, Dan got a new hip like uh, in a year ago, March. Oh yeah, it's uh, that's a real humbling experience, man. And, and before that, uh, Robert Lopez Elvez got a new hip, and uh, uh, I was down in San Diego, and he played. Uh, uh, the show with uh, as Bobby and the Pins, with the backing band was mostly the Schizophonics, and uh, he had a song called "New Hit," and he was fucking jumping off of the bass cabinet and no. high kicks and shit. I'm like, take it easy, Robert, but it was fucking fantastic. I'm impressed. That would I'm like hesitant to do it. I had to like run after my daughter a couple months ago, and I was like, oh, that didn't feel right. And I jumped, I jumped off like the second step of a ladder forgetting, you know, I was like putting shit up in storage and I forgot that I shouldn't jump off the ladder. Right. And I was just like, uh, you know, now I thought maybe Danny Bland mentioned to who mentioned my hip to you. I, I, I listened to Danita's interview. Oh, oh, okay. Thank you. Oh, fuck. I forgot. I t- mentioned it to her. Um, yeah. Cause I mentioned, I think, it, I think it was in the intro cause you're talking about, <laughs> I, I didn't know if, because uh, I'm friends with Danny Bland, and I didn't know if he uh, maybe just was like, fuck with Dwyer and his hip. <laughs> Literally this morning, I saw that you did something with Jimmy Dale Gilmore, and it blew my fucking mind away. Oh, right. How, how did that? <laughs> I know that you did it like a, I always like to bring up something you did 15 years ago to kick it off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um Oh, we used to go see Jimmy Dale Gilmore when he would come to town and um, uh, being fans of his. And I think it came about because uh, this woman, Faith Henschel, who uh, used to be the music director at KCMU, the local radio station when I was a DJ there, uh, and a good friend of Jonathan Poneman's, um, uh like somehow John and her were talking somehow mentioned that we were fans of him. And I think they made that happen. It, I just, I couldn't for, I was ashamed. I didn't know about it, but I was also, I'm a fan of his obviously. And he's done the podcast. And I was just like, how the fuck did I miss this? And it's incredible. Well, he's got a great voice. Yeah. Was, I, I, is he a roundabout influence on Mud Honey at all, or is that kind of a stretch? Uh, we've taken our stabs at Terrible Country. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, do the song that he covered of yours. Did you intend that to sort of uh, uh, was that it in, in the vein of a country song, or was that? No, uh, no. I think that was when we wrote it. It was more like a nod to the Thirteenth Floor Elevators. Did you have any idea what attracted him to that song? They're both from Texas. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that works. Yeah, I don't think he knew that we were ripping off the 13th floor elevators, but maybe he did. Yeah, it's, uh, he's just, I don't know, I feel like he, I feel like, I actually, I just heard they have a new album coming out uh, soon, the Flatlanders, oh, cool. which I was kind of like. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, uh, the uh, Jimmy Neal Gilmore used to like host a day right before South by Southwest, and I remember. I mean, it's a long time ago. Steve, Dan, and I flew down for that and played along on a song or two. Was that 
was that like as I know because I also know you worked with uh, Wayne Kramer and I know that was a big (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah, that was crazy that was something I never expected to happen I mean there's all these things like when you're a kid you like worship these bands and uh, I guess if you stick around long enough you might have a chance of like you know like Things have happened that I never, ever even thought possible, like playing with the Stooges and the Scientists and the Flesh Eaters and like, I mean, sharing shows with them and then like being in a version of the MC5, the DKT MC5 with Wayne and the remaining members of the band. uh, Just weird shit. It's super cool. Yeah. Was when, because, you know, I feel like the MC5 definitely had a resurgence in the 90s and, of course, now. And I saw, I saw them and I just had Brendan Canty on and we talked about, which I. That last lineup of that MC5 thing, tribute thing, that MC50 or whatever it's called, was fantastic. I. Marcus fucking killed it. I felt, uh, yeah, he did. Like it was, it was, I felt high for two days after I saw that show. Like I was just like, felt like I had a religious experience and I'm an atheist. (laughs) Well, I think atheists are the only people who actually have religious experiences. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point. But, uh, what, when did you become aware of like the MC5 and how did, like, was that an early discovery for you? I, I don't know what, like your... I just always, cause I saw that you were into punk and stuff in high school and that's kind of when I got into it. But before life, before me, me with that, before hearing that music, it was pretty fucking tedious. Right. Uh, I didn't hear, I heard the MC five a little later. I heard the Stooges before I heard the MC five. Um, I'm not sure why I didn't hear them at the same time. Uh, I, uh, you know, I might've been Kim Thiel that turned me on to the MC five cause he was, uh, you know, huge fan of kick out the jams. Uh, but like in high school, actually, if you want to go back to that, um, I wasn't really into punk per se, although I had a friend, uh, a close friend who we did our first band together. Like he somehow was hit to like the Velvet Underground and Brian Eno. Um, kind of, rock radio which would eventually become classic rock I suppose except our playlists were much more broad at the time um and, but I kind of hated like the hard rock that was you know like Foreigner and Sticks and shit like that yeah that's, that was, um, the, and the, that shit sort of coming back in an ironic way has driven me fucking crazy oh man <laughs> hearing journey a couple of years ago and that one song just went huge it's just like fuck how is this happening um yeah because i lived through when people are like this is great i was like i lived through this already <laughs> i was like i don't need to live yeah. through this again but i guess you know if people are going into the past they're going to go into like the obvious yeah the more popular parts of the past generally that's what the nostalgia is pop nostalgia is all about yeah yeah, because I used to bartend and there'd be an 80s night. And I was like, this isn't the 80s that I liked. This is none of the stuff I liked in the 80s. We're missing all yeah. of it. 
No, I mean, the 80s were, like, really vital musically, but, like, on a pop level, it was fucking terrible. Yeah. I w- no. But, yeah, so, so you were Foreigner. So was there stuff re- that was, like, in reaction to Foreigner that you were listening to? Well, I mean, in a small way, at the beginning, kind of like in junior high school, a friend of mine turned me on to Rush, and that seemed like they weren't, like, a radio band at that point. And, you know, they didn't sing about cars and girls, so that seemed like a departure from that kind of stuff. Um, but got into Devo, like I was into skateboarding and there was like these kids sort of in my neighborhood that had a, a quarter pipe that wasn't really a quarter pipe uh, that I would travel to. And they had like three records. They had Jimi Hendrix crash landing, uh, a Zeppelin record. And someone had given one of the brothers, are we not men as a joke gift? And I remember that, like, kind of that became our go-to record. Like, this is just, first it was like, this is weird. And then it was like, man, this is great. Yeah, I remember, like, not getting it as a kid either. Like, what the fuck is this? And then not, now, I, I mean, not that I, it took me, <laughs> it did take me 30 years, but I'm like, it's like, it still blows my mind. Yeah, yeah, it's a, that record is so far ahead of its time. What do you, what was the joke behind them giving you that like because it was new wave and i don't like uh, well I, yeah, I was just sort of like here's a weird cover this music's weird and i think that's kind of it you know like, yeah like oh you think you've got a record it's gonna be shitty <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i feel like people in my t- and i grew up outside chicago where it was very much the same thing it was like listen to the the basics and then stuff like devo people were just like they didn't know what the fuck to do with it and punk was scary yeah like when i went to uh, a small college in rural oregon like the only reference people had this was like in 1980 was devo because whip it had become a hit and by that point i was starting to listen to you know like hard what would become hardcore you know like the dead kennedys and black flag and stuff and people are calling me Hey Devo <laughs> Fuck you I like Flipper <laughs> it, Was it, uh, it It was harder to find music back then How would you go about f- Finding stuff Because like Were the zines Did, was Yeah that- Record stores and fanzines Like you know There was uh, An import record shop In downtown Seattle Also like when I was in high school There was this used record store In Bellevue Called Roboto Records Which is like where uh, Smitty and, and Darren and all our friends from uh, high school who were like kind of into things that weren't just mainstream rock would go to and the people there were obviously knowledgeable and uh, tuned in and they would uh, kind of pointed us in different directions you know like got into Ornette Coleman and Albert Eiler and, and as well as like you know the New York Dolls and um, and they didn't laugh at me when I bought a Jean-Luc Ponty record <laughs> <laughs> I I think I was the only guy in my high school who bought a Jean-Luc Ponty record <laughs> I mean at the time I was just like what you know I this sort of background in classical music not really just mainly my mom was an opera singer and um so i think the idea of like electric violin maybe bridge the world somehow although my mom just thought it was crap <laughs> did you was your mom actively singing opera when you were a kid 
Uh, no, uh, she, um, her opera career would have happened during the Nazi regime. <laughs> oh, that's right. I read that your mom was from Germany. I forgot that for a brief moment. Yeah. Uh, so that got interrupted. She kind of started, I think, after the war, but by that point was kind of considered too old, I guess. At least that's the story she told us. Right. <laughs> was, but was she still like listening to a lot of music and was that sort of a part oh, of your Oh, yeah, but she only listened to classical and, and anything else was just uh, like rock and roll was basically banned in the house and it wasn't because like my parents were religious which they were it was because it was just shit music <laughs> did that make it more enticing to you to listen oh, for sure <laughs> for sure as a little kid I would like sneak into uh, uh, our parents Volkswagen my parents Volkswagen bug because it had an AM radio that you could just turn on without putting a key in the ignition and listen to like you know top 40 radio at the time i hope like green-eyed lady came on or something wow that's uh and then when did you start playing because it was mr epp something you started in high school mr epp was an imaginary band in high school it didn't actually we didn't actually buy instruments till like the summer after we graduated uh although darren who's now dorothy uh was a drummer and had really good chops. Yeah, I I found some online and I I liked it quite a bit actually. <laughs> There's not a ton to be you you're not fond of it anymore. I, I just uh, listened to it a long time. <laughs> I was. Um, how did your mom feel about you going into rock and roll? Oh, she uh, thought it was a total waste of time and, you know, like you need to have a, something to fall back on. Um, and when I was going to college, I mean, I wasn't sure. I didn't have a plan to be a musician or anything, but I thought like maybe I was going to be a writer or something like that. And I was like, you know, I'm not going to, aside from, I wasn't going to like study business, just to have something to fall back on. Yeah. Um... Uh, it wasn't until like we actually toured Europe and got to go to Germany that my mom kind of was like, Oh, this is okay. And so she was like proud of the fact that we were a thing, but also was like, I think also kind of embarrassed by what we did. (laughs) (laughs) Did she ever come to a show? Yeah, she came to, uh, we um, <laughs> uh, played a Halloween show with Nirvana in October of, would that be 91, like the year Nirvana, uh, or Nevermind came out? Yeah, yeah, at the Paramount Theater, and she came to that show. I figured that was like, for her to come to a theater with seats was okay, instead of like a dingy club, you know. Was that... Did that affect your performing at all to know that your mom was there? Just because I've performed in front of my mom before and it like fucked with my head. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I said something, you know, I introduced Touch Me, I'm Sick as my mom's favorite song. <laughs> mom's in the crowd tonight is her favorite song. <laughs> was she ever like ver- verbally uh, like be like, what are you doing with your life? Mark? Oh yeah. All the time. All the fucking time. <laughs> 
Was was that like just more fuel to be like fuck it? I'm going because you you to some level like your mom not. It, it was just sort of I don't know something to try to like ignore. I guess I wasn't you know I'm I'm doing this. Fuck you, mom. I'm doing this anyway. You know, just like uh, I'm I am who I am. Yeah, yeah. It was and. Were you into because you went to a Christian school too, right? You went to, I did, yeah. Did that? I don't know. How, was that just you had to go to there because your parents shoved you in there? And I was, just... yeah. I mean, <laughs> at that school there were like two kinds of kids that ended up there. Like the kids that came from like super uh, religious families that uh, their parents didn't want them poisoned by the secular world, and they were like there from like kindergarten on. And then there were the kids like me and, and Smitty and basically like most of the people in the Mr. Up world that like uh, got into a little bit of trouble and were sent there. <laughs> what kind of trouble were you getting into? I, got, I was like kind of shoplifting and hanging out with sort of like, you know, like the quote unquote bad crowd and uh, my parents wouldn't allow me to have like a BMX bike. So with a group of this, these friends who all had BMX bikes, they helped me steal a bike and we got caught, you know, and my parents were just like, you need to stop hanging around these people. (laughs) Um, you know, which is, and actually it was a really good thing because I feel like if I, if I just ended up going to the public high school, I might just end up being like a stoner burnout. Like, all those people end up being <laughs> instead of like meeting Smitty and like getting tuned on to cool things, you know? Yeah. When did you start feeling like you wanted to go from listening to music to playing? Well, in the seventies, there's that whole thing. Like, you know, like you had to be a good musician to be in a band. So it wasn't until like after punk rock and especially like, for me, like kind of like the early eighties, like, uh, yeah, you know, hearing like flipper and just kind of coming to the realization, like as long as you have a strong drum beat, you can play whatever the fuck over the top. It doesn't matter. Then that was kind of the theory that I, you know, like when we first started, I didn't even know what a bar chord was. <laughs> Yeah. Did you did you just like we didn't know about, we didn't know about tuning, we just had guitars. <laughs> you know, we were just like we kind of figured that stuff out over time. So, so would you guys just get together and just be like and just play without n- not knowing? Make, make a bunch of noise. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh Smitty and I went in on a uh little PV 30 watt amp backstage had a gain button. And you, if you turn that all the way up, it would just like feedback and eventually got an MXR distortion plus. And so like the sound was, you know, you know, every time you didn't play a chord, it would just squeal like, uh, and that was, uh, a, a huge part of what we were doing in our effort to clear the room. <laughs> but was that also like, were you, uh, how much of that Detroit band sound was something you were going after? Like 
Stooges and MC5. As Mr. Up kind of went on, that kind of like came in like towards the end. And that was about around the time that like Steve Turner joined the band on second guitar. And when did you start feeling like you were like maybe getting somewhere with it? Like you were like, oh, wait, we actually aren't just making noise. We're actually doing. I, you know, I don't know. Um, like we were at the beginning, Mr. Epp was just sort of like people thought we were like dumb shits from the suburbs. <laughs> but then I think like there were these other sort of outsiders who weren't like the cool, like Fonzie type punks who, who uh, went to shows and uh, they weren't like the cool kids or just kind of more like the geeky outsiders. Uh, and they seemed to gravitate towards us. Um, and so kind of by the end, like, you know, we had a minor local following. With Mr. Epps. And then w- when did that switch to, like, when did you start focusing on mud hunting from that? Because well, it's a pretty, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Green River happened between right. the two. Yeah, and then uh, I know that spun out. What what made you guys decide to do uh, mud hunting? Was it just like Green River ended and you're like, fuck it, we're going to go do this? Uh, well, you know, I all of a sudden found myself without a band and I realized I hadn't been hadn't played a band with Steve Turner for a while. Although I was playing drums in this uh, fuck band called The Thrown Ups, which the, uh, that was with Steve and, and Ed Fotheringham and Leighton Beezer, Satan. Um and that the whole idea behind that was just like get drunk, write a set list of the funniest titles we could think of, and then start playing. With just like improvising? Yeah, yeah. How'd that land? <laughs> uh it was hilarious live, because like Ed would always do like uh he, he came up with sort of like theatrical things, like he made um one thing that he had, he made like these, uh, and it would be a different thing every show. Like uh, one time he made these, what he called zip pants out of garbage bags. And uh, so he made these pants out of the garbage bags and under, on the inside, he made these pockets of like shaving cream. And as he was, you know, vocalizing, he would stab a pocket of shaving cream and like, squeeze his leg and the shaving cream would go shooting up in the crowd. <laughs> I don't even know how he conceived of that. Like, you know, like how he thought that would work necessarily. Like, I don't think he tried it out, but it did. And it worked beautifully. Was there a lot of that going on in this? It sounds like the scene was just kind of open and a free-for-all. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. People were, you know, like the U-Men who were like the biggest band of the time. Like, none of their two shows were the same. Everything was like kind of somewhat conceptual and and uh pretty cool yeah it seems a lot like similar to the new york no wave scene where people are just getting up and trying anything well like the human they had songs and they would you know they would play the same songs it was just uh like how they delivered them would be different right yeah i mean that's what i I did mean like you guys were going up there half-assing it (laughs) Uh, was it was it strange when the Seattle thing went from being completely underground and then you were suddenly just like the main focus of 
I don't. I always because it's like from the outside, it always seems to be one thing, and on the inside, it just it's like is everyone just like what the fuck is happening here? Yeah, it was kind of incremental. Like it seemed like by the late eighties, by eighty nine, like on a kind of college radio fanzine level, it seemed like Jesus Christ, I'm getting sick of this, you know. And then of course, like it, it moved from that to like actually a cultural thing where it went from like music magazines to like Newsweek or the cover of time or something like that. You know, that was kind of nuts. Yeah. It just, it seemed like it from my perspective is because I was in my twenties when that happened. I was just, it just seemed like out of nowhere. Suddenly it was like, I was like, Oh, these bands are great. And then it was just like everywhere. And it was just dizzying from the outside, let alone from the inside. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, a lot, a lot of the people who uh, um, who ended up in famous bands have been playing since like the early '80s, you know. And I would say, like, most of us knew each other. I think the outsider of that group of like the big bands would be Alice in Chains because they came more from like the uh, the east side metal scene or the suburban Burian metal scene whereas we you know all like were suburban kids who moved into the city <laughs> and uh, uh, <clears throat> tried to be urban um, has it been with because I've never talked to anybody on the podcast about having a uh, a reissue with the, with the reissue of this album did you have an active part in like going through each song oh yeah 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 um i mean the whole thing was kind of i think it, it, it was i was the one who kind of realized like the 30th anniversary is coming up like two years ago or something and uh kind of talked to chris jacobs or our guy at sub pop about you know it might be a good idea to do something with this and as opposed to the self-titled album the previous album I know every good boy deserves fun. Had a whole bunch of like kind of extra stuff to go along with it, um, and uh, we kind of looked up the original release date. And if Wikipedia is to believe, that oh, was July. That was July twenty third, um, which is a Tuesday. It was a Tuesday then, which was the release date back then. So it was like probably, and and now this year the twenty third is a Friday, which is record releases have been moved to so it kind of like was coming out on the exact same day 30 years later which is kind of crazy was it was to go through stuff had you like not heard some of those songs in a long time especially like the extras (laughs) yeah there's all these like tapes that uh um like we brought to Johnny Sangster and he like uh uh sent us files so we could listen to them. And there was like one song that was like titled something like uh, same old dream. And I was like, oh, this is, I kind of vaguely remember doing this song. And, and it wasn't until later that I realized that we retitled it. Don't fade four. And it was actually on the album. <laughs> <laughs> and was it did like you originally recorded the album in like a studio called the egg, right? With egg, egg, egg studios. Yeah. And I was reading that you kind of, you guys wanted to get back to something a little bit more raw? Like, is that? 
Yeah. Um, the reasoning behind that was like we kind of felt like the best sounding record we had done at that point was the first single, Touch Me, I'm Sick and Sweet Young Thing. It was like the rawest uh, sound. And that was recorded. And we we're saying, well, okay, what happened? Um, and Reciprocal at that point had an eight track studio and then they got a 16 track studio. And so, like, Super Fuzz and the self titled Mud Honey record were recorded there. And then after that, we uh, went into a 24-track studio with Jack and Dino and and recorded like five tracks and kind of came away feeling like, yeah, this is sounding kind of too slick. This isn't what we want. Um, and I think maybe that like talking to Jack recently, he was like running the uh, tape at like the highest speed so it would have the most clarity and He's like, I would never do that now. He's got 30 years experience under his belt. Like, he would just never, that's not how he would record on a 24-track scooter. Um, uh, so we went, you know, tried to think about what we want to do, and Steve came up with the idea of, like, going to Conrad, and he called Conrad Uno, uh, in his basement, it's just a small eight track, and his or his studio is a small eight track in his basement. And uh, uh, Steve was like, "Hi, Steve from Mud Honey, we'd like to record with you." And Conrad just started laughing and said, "Why?" <laughs> we took that as like a really good sign for someone who, you know, <laughs> no bullshit, you know. Does is that sort of a thing that you feel like? that you've had to return to over the, uh, over the years where you're like, all right, we've got away, we got too slick or does that ever question arise again where you have to be like, Oh, we got to go back to, cause you get, you've made a, a lot of albums. And I'm yeah, yeah. I mean, the only one, one time that it was a major concern was for our first major label record for piece of cake, you know? And I remember meeting with these guys that like helmed Warner brothers, you know, and they're like, what did you do to, the replacements and who's could do. <laughs> and, and, and they said like, we just gave them the money and they recorded however they wanted to. Um, and so keeping that in mind, you know, we we're like, we're going back and we're going to record with Conrad in his basement. Oh, you recorded that album in the, in the egg too. Yeah. Was that a, cause I know that was an era where there's, the major labels were coming after people. Was that like a daunt, like something you were hesitant to do just because a lot of, I mean, I knew people back then who were <clears throat> afraid to go to a label because they didn't want it to fuck with their sound or seem like overly commercial. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, the thing was, is at the time of every good boy deserves fudge, um, sub pop was having kind of financial difficulties. They had a, a severe cash flow problem. Uh, uh, so we're like, oh, what, what are we going to do? You know, we didn't want to like have them owe us a bunch of money and like, you know, be unfriendly because of that. Um, like burn our friendships. Uh, so we, uh, decided to look elsewhere, which, you know, it, I think for a while actually kind of did burn the friendship. We didn't con conceive of that at that time. Um, and we went to the, uh, 
the label that was uh, distributing Sub Pop, uh, Caroline Records out of New York. We had a meeting with their president and uh, he gave us all kinds of really wonderful advice. Like, you know, you got to start, the Smashing Pumpkins were on that label at that time. It's like, you got a tour nine months out of the year like the Smashing Pumpkins. Well, we fucking did a nine-week tour in Europe and almost lost our shit. So we're not going <laughs> to tour nine months. Um, and you got to sweeten up your guitar sounds. It's like, we do that. What have we got? We got nothing. Our guitar sound is us. And um, and also said, you, you can't have any side projects without label approval. And we're like, fuck you. Like Steve and I were just doing the first monkey wrench record at the time. And, it, you know, just, it, it just seemed like, well, if this is what an independent label is going to, the gauntlet that they're going to throw down. We might as well talk to uh, major labels. Yeah. That's crazy from a small, like an independent label. <laughs> Super insane. <laughs> Also, it's just like uh, the amount of control they would want just is absurd. Like, who would want to jump on board with that? Yeah, yeah. And yeah, because I while you were saying that, I was like, I was like, is did I miss something? Is this a major label? Because who would be that dickish? (laughs) It it was a nice lunch that we had, though. (laughs) Well, that's yeah. I hope you got the ribs or or the steak or the lobster or all three. I don't remember. <laughs> was that was there a lot of that whining and dining when you were going to switching over to a major label? Uh, we, you know, there were a couple of people who came up and met us, and then we actually, you know, went down to LA and met with some people. Um, it wasn't insane, you know. We we were careful when we did the contract not to like go for a bidding war type situation. Cause we seen that we thought that seemed really short sighted. Uh, and instead, um, we had a lawyer who, uh, uh, by the way, had been in Shanana. He was a guitar player <laughs> and played at Woodstock. Um, uh, Shanana and Woodstock always confused me. Cause I was like, this doesn't fit. <laughs> I watched that show as a kid and I was like, this, like, and then I watched obviously the Woodstock movie later and I was like, how the fuck did that? Happen? That's like, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think he was in the band anymore by the time they had the TV series. Oh, he um, decided to get the business side of things. Oh. Real was. I really hope it was Bowser. Hmm? I hope. Oh it was- no, no, it was, uh, it was Elliot Kahn. Uh, and he was, he was a really good, you know, like a good dude. He understood where we want, we're coming from. And, uh, you know, basically we're, and crafted like, uh, more of a low dollar artist friendly, more control kind of contract. Was that strange to be in that position after like starting off? I mean, did that even enter your head when you started in music that like, Oh, someday we're going to sit down and have these major conversations. Was that just surreal? That was, it was weird, you know, cause that was not, nothing I'd ever aspired to or, or thought that we, you know, would fall in our laps. Yeah. Did, were you just like, fuck it. We'll go for the ride and see how this goes. Kind of, but like, you know, we want to have a little, you know, a chance to put our foot on the brakes. So that's kind of how we did it. Um, the only time I think that we actually did like a big record was 
the, uh, the last record for reprise. And it was mainly because the way our contract was structured for the first two records, whatever we didn't spend in the studio would come back to us. So like we got this recording budget and if say if we live like, you know, like 120 grand or something like that. And if we spent like 30 grand, which is what we did to record a piece of cake, then the rest of the money goes to the band. But on the third record, on the option, uh, whatever we didn't spend in the studio went back to the label. So we're like, okay, we're just going to blow <laughs> blow their money. We, we, we know this is the end, you know? And so that was how we ended up working with like Jim Dickinson and like going to Ardent and in, uh, uh, um, in Memphis and also uh, mixing the record in, in LA with David Bianco. Would that also, would you just be able to order in food on that dime and just be like, could you do whatever you wanted with that? I, you know, I, I was probably unaware of like who was paying for what. <laughs> I would assume like it was all part of the recording budget. I can't help but wonder if the label was like, because if they gave you 100 grand and you spent 30 to record it, if they're like, hey, this was a bad move on our part. We're going to have to stop doing this. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if they, they get that. Uh, if they uh, would approve that kind of contract nowadays. Yeah, well, uh, fuck them. They've been. <laughs> um, so, w- what was was sort of going through the, all the music for for the reissue? Was it at all like nostalgic, or did it like trigger a lot of memories? And like, was it because you haven't thought about it much in like thirty years? I was just wondering if things came back to you, or w- what what that was like. Oh, nothing comes back. To <laughs> um, so those, you know, thirty years ago, those days were pretty hazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there were things, you know, that I'd like completely forgotten about. Like, for instance, that song. That song, and uh, you know, things that I didn't realize that we had done. Like, there's a song on there called "Flowers for Industry," which was kind of more along the lines of like a, a thrown up approach where clearly we just like made up something on the spot. Um, so uh, when you get to hear it, you'll be so thankful you finally get to hear it. <laughs> I actually have it open in my uh, window to order the record after we get done. Cause uh, I've, they sent me a digital copy and it's, I mean, which I, and I haven't listened to it in a long time. It's so fucking good. It's such a great album. And of course oh. the extras are also incredible. Um, as, as you don't think Becca will hook you up with a piece of vinyl. That's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, but I always like, I, you know, I'm one of those guys I want to buy because I want to, I want, I like, you know, I want to support unless it doesn't. Okay. We'll take it. Yeah. I just, <laughs> I've, you know, like streaming and stuff. I feel like, like I was, before we entered, I was just thinking uh, like, cause I'm going to buy it. And I just bought two other records cause uh band camp is doing the, uh, like a fundraiser for and a double C I've just fucked it up, but you know what I mean? Uh, and I was like, all right, I want to see. Is it a June, a June team? Yeah. Juneteenth. And so I was like, Oh, I want to, a support bands and then i also get to it's a double bammy right right so i just if people don't buy music I, it's infuriating to me and it must be more infuriating to you because you're a musician and i'm not 
Yeah, uh, uh, it's weird. Like, it seems like uh, every so often there's like this new format or whatever that comes up and that like kind of screws the artist just a little bit more. First it was CDs and and then it just kind of went into like this like, hey, here's some air you can listen to. (laughs) We don't actually have anything. Um, are you going to tour on the, with this reissue or is that a, we, uh, had, had touring plans that we postponed for another year. Cause of the, uh, cause of the bullshit. Yeah. 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 We had, uh, you know, we were going to tour in 2020 and everything got pushed back to 2021 and obviously that wasn't going to happen. So we pushed it back to 2022. Um, like a couple of months ago when we were discussing this, it looked like, Europe was so far behind on vaccinations and that's where the tour was going to be. Uh, and also Brexit is, uh, uh, bringing up a whole bunch of other issues in terms of like crossing the border with like, you know, even the stuff you have to sell and also your gear, you know, like there's, uh, we figured we just let, uh, younger, hungrier bands work out the kinks and we'll talk <laughs> Do you go, because you mentioned like you went out for nine weeks and you guys almost like had a breakdown or something. Do you not go out for that long? And Oh, no, no. That was the longest tour we've ever done. Nine weeks was uh, the longest tour? Because, uh, yeah, when people go... And, 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 you know, at the time we're like, yeah, you know, bring it on, make it longer, you know. And, and it was just like our uh, booking agent at the time was in Holland. And I think we played like nine of those shows in Holland, which is, you know, like it's two hours across and three hours long. (laughs) You know, like nine shows in this tiny country. Um, uh, And and we didn't, like, we never like turned on each other. We just, looking back on it, I realized we're just like sleep deprived and drinking to excess and we just kind of like had a hard time discerning reality and just like everything became just insanely funny which was kind of cool but also <laughs> like no way to like you know we, we were young and had a little more fortitude and, and could stand like could, could function on little sleep but uh, I couldn't do that anymore yeah I when I was 21 22 i i toured in a like a theater company and i f- drank like i was in uh, wanted in a band like i drank like a lunatic and i'm like how the fuck I, I i couldn't do it today i'd i'd just break down and cry somewhere <laughs> was it just like because i read or i watched a video of you talking about like discovering wheat beer in berlin and i was like first of all that <laughs> sounds delicious <laughs> But it also just, I was like, I know, I know how he felt. <laughs> <laughs> right, do you know more? Do you drink anymore? Or is that all in the past? I do, but I uh, try to limit it to uh, half a bottle of wine with dinner. Oh, I wish I could do that, Mark. <laughs> um, you know, I, I try to think of it as, as food part of the meal. Oh, yeah. Okay. Maybe. And I find, like, the, uh, my, my wife's out of town, and the other night I, like, drank three quarters of a bottle. And it's like, it's amazing how just that one extra glass can, like, make the difference the next day. Yeah. Just, yeah. I just... Fuck, I have a headache. For, and I didn't. I don't normally. You know, I normally feel fine. 
Yeah, I don't know how I did it for so long. I mean, like hard, just hardcore. I and like now, if I eat too much ice cream, I feel like shit. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Mark, and uh, I'll uh, let Becca know when this goes up if you want to, if you need to hear it or anything like that. Sure. Yeah. Thank you, Matt. much for listening to conversations with the wire please become a patreon subscriber if you like also subscribe to the show on your itunes or what have you not and tell your friends about the show that would mean a lot to me as well as uh, go to the link tree in the show notes or the mattdwire.com or conversations with the wire at the instagram and you could learn more about the show buy merch and all those great things thank you very much for listening